Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you are doing well this morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We'll be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. Let me start off by reading our response questions. They are up on the screen right now. Number one, does the fear of the Lord comfort or frighten you? Number two, what fears have you seen that control us? How are we built up in faith? Those are our questions that we will use to respond at the end of our time this morning. So if you grew up in a Christian context and have a pretty, pretty much have been going to church since you were a child, you grew up learning many of the major Bible stories. And along with those stories, you might have picked up on a few of the children's songs that go along with them. My family didn't start going to church until I was eh, sixth grade or so. So unfortunately, I didn't learn those songs like probably many of you grew up doing. And by the time I got to uh, Sunday school at that age, I was a little too, as you would say, cool to sing. Uh, now, much of those songs, as cheesy as they might be, they are really helpful, though, in helping us remember, especially even from children, remembering the scripture and how these stories go. So some of those songs that you might have learned, uh, such as Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. We don't want to sing too much of that because uh, we will talk about him in a couple months as we go through Luke. What about Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, right? Y'all remember that one, of course, more popular. And then there's another one, too. Uh, Jesus loves me for this I know, because the Bible tells me so. We all know that one, even probably many people who have never been to church at all. Uh, last one, maybe not as well known, but you probably have heard this one, too. If Jesus is in the boat, you can smile through the storm, smile through the storm, smile through the storm. If Jesus is in the boat, you can smile through the storm while you're sailing home. Do you remember this one? No? None of you? None of you remember this song. While Jesus is in the boat, you can smile through the storm. Nobody remembers that. I can't believe this. How can I remember this and not any of you? Anyways, it continues to go, sailing, sailing home, sailing, sailing home. If Jesus is in the boat, you can smile through the storm while you're going home or while you're sailing home. So, no one's heard that. That is just mind-blowing to me. That just pretty much ruins my sermon altogether. Oh, well, you just have to listen to it anyways. Well, I didn't learn that song, like many of the other songs, until probably around college when we did, we did a skit to it or something uh, like that. And if you've come prepared today, you know that our sermon this morning from Luke chapter 8 is from verses 22 through 25, which deals with the time, the story of when Jesus goes into the boat with his disciples and they encounter a, a, a horrific storm. And if you've come prepared, you know that this is where we will, uh, we will be at this morning. Now, not to chip away at your childhood and these wonderful songs that we've learned, because they're good songs and they speak about wonderful truth that help children understand the stories and some of the metaphors that come with the, the scripture. But if we are not careful, we can oversimplify the passage. 
not only by applying the song as a slogan or a bumper sticker, or, or that is exactly what only thing we know or remember about those passages. And so we become, we oversimplify these, uh, these passages, these wonderful s- stories that show us so much more than just boats and storms and, and being scared. Um, this is probably one of the uh, uh, one of the most uh, one of the most important things, at least something I've seen in most Baptist adults or a lot of Baptist adult, adults, is that we treat these passages as only for children, uh, kind of like what we heard in Jonah. That's just that's a child story. You learn that as a child, and then as an adult, this is something I can just I don't really need anymore. And truthfully, when we think about this story, if you're familiar with it at all, is they're not really rated for children at all. Uh, because it's more like the the movies, The Perfect Storm, All Is Lost with Robert Redford, and Titanic, just without all the love story garbage. The, 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 all those stories, which are movies, are completely unrated for children, and yet this is the kind of story and that we we see in our uh, passage this morning in Luke. And the reality and the brevity of this narrative, which is also recorded in Matthew and Mark, has everything to do with seeing the Son of God as he really is, and and only in the presence of Christ is when our hearts will give way over to peace instead of fear. And by the way, since you didn't know the song, Jesus is in the boat, that's the smiling part. That's the peace that gives way to the to the presence of Christ despite the storm that we're in. So let's look at our Bibles now, and let's look to Luke chapter 8, and we will get started in verse 22. So Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, as he got into the boat with his disciples, he said to them, Let's go across the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him? Amen. May the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, teach us this morning from his holy, inspired, inerrant word. Funny how over the last month we have been going through the book of Jonah, which also has a kind of a similar story to it with boats and storms and fear of death, but with a very different context and ending. But yet the theme seems to be the same. God appointed, God reveals himself, God rescues, and God teaches. Let's unpack this passage together. So verse 22, Jesus wanting to get out of the, the, the area of, the, of Capernaum and to cross the lake over to uh, Gerasenes. We'll see that in verse 26 uh, next week. Uh, to take the short way across the lake instead of walking around. You get in a boat and you sail across. And, and plus, you know, it makes sense. You have some guys with you who they, they know what they're doing on the lake. They know how to handle themselves in a boat. They're fishermen. 
And, and if there was something that the disciples really didn't fear or, or would have any anticipated anxiety over, uh, would be to cross over the Sea of Galilee in a boat. This is what they do. They know the lake. Most of these guys were experienced fishermen who knew the lake, how to handle themselves on the boat. There was more than enough experience in the fishermen that were with them to go around to others, such as uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector. Uh, no problem for these guys. No fear. They, they got this. Now, the only thing that they might have feared, of course, as fishermen, they would know this, that when it comes to sailing on lakes, particularly the this, this Sea of Galilee, these treacherous storms will turn the lake into, un, into an unnavigatable washing machine. But they were good enough sailors to know how to spot bad weather coming. Plus, Jesus was with them. So what could go wrong? Now in the very next verse, as we know, Jesus uh, goes to sleep. You see, they get in the boat, they go to sleep, Jesus goes to sleep. And, and Mark's gospel tells us that it was the evening. So Jesus goes to the front of the boat and he sleeps. And as he is sleeping, this storm comes up. Uh, comes down upon them and almost literally down upon them because of the topography surrounding the Sea of Galilee is is very mountainous and and so as the uh, as the mountains that surround the lake when a storm comes up upon the Sea of Galilee the wind that comes through these mountains the valleys between them turn into wind tunnels and when the air hits the lake it goes from a a calm to a raging washing machine, as I said earlier, and, and just and, and, and very little warning. Um, the storm goes from calm to tempestuous, as we learn from, uh, from Jonah. And lakes in general are very dangerous because uh, they have no rhythm to them when the wind starts blowing upon them. Whereas the ocean, there's a rhythm to the waves where the sailors could point their ship into the waves and relatively, say, stay safe unless it becomes too much for them. Now, on the lake, though, it's a completely different ballgame because the, the wind and the water are coming from all different directions all the time. It's always shifting. It's never in, in one place. It's always shifting. So you don't know which way to point the boat, as you would in the ocean. Now, Jesus was asleep, though. Jesus was asleep through all of this. Now, I haven't traveled very much. Right, but I've done a little bit of traveling. One time, while on an airplane flying from Miami to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, in the middle of the flight, which was, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, probably over Cuba somewhere, or maybe even further, uh, further south, or or maybe over Venezuela or something like that. Oh, anyway, we are we are in the middle of nowhere. Who knows? In the middle of the night, every most of the cabin was asleep. Um, and, and that's when we started to hit this first set of turbulence from this particular storm. And, and it completely woke everybody up. I mean, it just shook us 
uh, uh, violently. I mean, it, I, I still can remember it. I remember the feelings even to this uh, this day. All the warning lights came on, the cabin lights came on, and, and lightning began to strike all around us. You could feel the storm uh, uh, as we were flying uh, flying through. I remember looking out the window and, and just being stunned and, and humbled. Uh, went in and, and helpless seeing lightning not come down but lightning go down uh, that was just so uh, humbling uh, and, and helpless but everyone on the plane was awake nobody was sleeping everybody was awake at least until we got out of the storm and then we can go back to just back to sleep until we landed early that morning uh, that was a crazy night crazy night for us scary but not for Jesus. Jesus stayed asleep the whole time. Why wasn't he worried? Why wasn't he responding like we did on the airplane? Why wasn't he responding like the disciples that night? Well, let's talk about that. First, Jesus being the sinless Son of God, he was able to enjoy inner peace. Inner peace that was completely free from all anxiety unlike we are you know it doesn't take much for for our life in our lives for us to to show we are not in control we like to think we are in control and we we live probably 98% of our lives as if we are in control anticipating certain things and expecting certain things to happen but it doesn't take much for that world that control to get rocked but jesus Completely at peace, completely confident with the Father, completely comforted and being led by the Holy Spirit. Amazing. He sleeps. Another thing, too, is why is Jesus sleeping? Well, remember, Jesus is not only God, but Jesus is also man. And in his humanity, Jesus was completely exhausted. Remember all that he has been doing throughout Luke. Constantly living on the edge of exhaustion because he is constantly dealing with sin, constantly dealing with hurt, constantly dealing with pain. Those who are in the worst moments of his life, Jesus is walking right through and stepping right into those lives and healing. Jesus teaching day after day after day, miracle after miracle, and in his humanity, the God-man was given way to exhaustion. He was tired. He was weary. I think we can understand that. We know the feeling and how comforting it is to know that this is Jesus. So Jesus, in verse 24, is awakened by the disciples. The disciples wake Jesus up because it's every man for himself at this time. This is it. Boat's, boat's going down. Jesus, wake up. We're going to drown. I think you can read a little, little accusatory statements in these guys voice almost as if they're saying to jesus really you brought us out here to die and all you can do is sleep isn't this just a little reminiscent of israel in the desert 
Now, I, I'm not sure if you picked up on this or now, but in regard to the child, the children's song that I, I mentioned uh, earlier that we sang, or at least I sang because I'm pretty much the only one that knew this song, how kind of ridiculous it is that, about this song that we sing. If Jesus is in the boat, you can smile after the storm because literally Jesus is in the boat with these guys, and they're not smiling. They were in terror. They were frantic. They were fearing a horrible death of dr drowning. And there's no worse way to die than drowning. And they're at the point of drowning. The storm couldn't wake, and wake Jesus up. But what does wake Jesus up? What does disturb Jesus? Their unbelief. So Jesus wakes up. And he does something that no one never anywhere does he speaks directly to the wind and the waves and rebukes them and mark he act we actually see his recorded words as he says peace be still which is ben's literal translation more like shut up by the power of his divine authority by the words of the sovereign he speaks to the forces of nature, and they instantly submit to the divine command. And then almost instantly, in eerie silence and peace and calm, comes over the lake and around them and surrounding the boat. A calm as if someone walked into a room and turned off a light switch. Look at verse 25. Here's where it gets good. So after Jesus speaks to the weather, and everything goes calm, he, he asks the stunned disciples, where is your faith? Now this seems like a harsh question. A harsh question to ask them after such a terrifying experience. I, I mean, doesn't their fear seem just natural as if every single one of us would have responded the same way the same way that i responded on that airplane that night i didn't freak out right i didn't i didn't freak out i didn't run around the airplane screaming and trying to grab life preserver didn't do any of that but but wouldn't we all respond in that kind of fear when faced with that kind of terror and that impending kind of death there's not anyone who wouldn't who wouldn't do that but asking this question, but Jesus asking this question to them is a reality check for them. Because it's as if he is asking, don't you know who's with you in the boat? Yet, how can you panic like that for your life when the Lord of all life is here right now with you in the boat? Where is your faith? Great question. We'll deal with that in a moment. Now here's one of the really astounding parts of the passage. Not the normal way of response. Do you see how the disciples respond to Jesus? They didn't cheer. They didn't applause Jesus. They didn't celebrate or even thank him. They became more afraid. Disciples just had one fear replaced by another, catching a glimpse of the holy commanding the wind and the waves, a simple thing for the Son of God to do. And they were undone. It says they were afraid and marveled. 
Have you ever thought in your relationship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, have you ever thought in your relationship with Him to be afraid? And look at the question that they ask each other. As if this is the very first time they've ever seen Jesus. What do they say? Who then is this? Even now, even now, after all the time they spent with the disciples, they are just baffled by him. They have no category to label him or to put him, put him in. How do you label someone who can do what he just did? You know, we have categories and labels for, for everything and everyone you meet. Everybody has their own little particular ways of which way we can understand them. So we have these categories that we, we, we put them in and how they are. But not Jesus. He is utterly and completely unique in every way. He is unlike anyone else, the God-man himself. R.C. Sproul said it like this, Yes, he shares with us some common dimensions of our humanity, but he did not sin, and there is nothing more commonplace to human behavior than sin. Not only that, but he brought life out of death. And he exercised an authority that no human being would ever dare to presume. He is in a class by himself. This is why Jesus cannot be put into the same category as other great religious teachers as some do, or prophets or founders of world religions. You see, when the disciples, when they encountered the Holy or when the holy encountered them, the uncommon, the unique. It is that place, it is at that place where they realize that there's nothing more terrifying than being in the presence of a personal holy God, which is far more terrifying than an impersonal, non-holy thing like a storm. Their fear was replaced by a greater fear. So what about us? When we are faced with storms, terrifying fear in this life, Jesus is asking us the question, where is your faith? And how we answer that question determines how we answer the question that the disciples asked. Who is this? So help us, to help us get there, I want to make three points for you this morning. The first of those is first... Fearing storms. What do we mean by fear and storms? Most often when this passage is preached, storms mean difficulties in our life. Hardships. And I, and I think that's certainly, a, there's a place of those, but I think it has to do with their fear. It has to do with fear. Because when the disciples were faced that horrific storm that night, it was the, the sum of all their fears, which was the impending death or the horrific death of drowning uh, that, was, that was about to happen as the boat filled up with water. And so in their fear, they abandoned all spiritual logic. In storms, in fear, we abandon all of our spiritual logic. We forget who is in the boat. They forget or we forget that he raised the dead, how he had healed already hundreds of people, how he among many other glorious miracles and mercy and grace that he has bestowed, how he has forgiven sins. You know, we may not face literal storms like they did that night, 
But we do face things that bring fear. That have us as well abandoned all spiritual logic. So how can it be? It could be a literal storm or a figurative storm. Pain, suffering, persecution, etc. It could be the fear of death. The greatest fear I think of all that we are so fearful of death. It could be the fear of the unknown in an uncertain future. How many people had fear for their future? The future of their lives, the future of their success, the future of their even their own freedom. When in 2008, President Barack Obama was elected, or even in 2012, people thought the world was going to end. Literally, people thought the world was going to end. It's happening again. Just on the other side, isn't it? Fear. Rule, ruling and controlling. Have you ever met someone who's been controlled or given over by fear? They probably don't believe it themselves. They probably can't even see that they're scared or fearful or their, their lives are being manipulated, controlled by their, by their fears. But do you see how it controls and consumes them? What Jesus is pointing out to them and to us is that when we give into fear, we are believing, whatever those fears may be, we are believing that they are bigger than God. Now, I know that sounds kind of cliche. But that's the perception that fear gives us. It makes, uh, makes those fears bigger than God. And that's why if we let it, it can control us and rule us and even master us. Even defeat us. Now let me share, you with, share with you another fear. A fear that pretty much every single one of us have had to deal with, whether you know it or not. Or you can recognize it. And that is the fear of man. So let me tell you what the fear of man is. Let me let me let you let you, uh, show you or, or tell you what what I mean by that. This is a big topic. It starts within each and every one of us as the need, as we all have this need to be liked and loved by other people, or at least we feel like that other people have something to give us to fill us up almost like we are an empty cup until someone loves us or likes us and then there's a little bit of water poured into it and we continue to pursue that so that we are liked and loved and our cup is filled up and we become happy we think that that's what's going to make us happy and when that happens we become bondaged where we become in bondage and controlled by others because now they, everything that they do say and everything is dictating how we interpret how we feel about ourselves and what we feel needs to fill us up. And so what they think and what they feel controls us and how we should think and how we should feel. The result then is that people are controlling you. So what is really happening here? The fear of man is believing that it is other people's approval that can fill you up. The fear of man is something that we just do naturally. And it's in the cultural air we breathe. Let me explain. The culture we live teaches that everyone on some level is a victim. I mean, this is everywhere. And what we mean in this victimized culture, this victimization culture is that everyone on some level at some point is a victim. It's always someone else's fault no matter what happens in my life. 
Meaning I can point to other people and say, you, you are responsible for my actions. I only do because of what you have shown me or told me to do. Blame shifting is really saying that other people control our behavior and that's the fear of man. The fear of man tells us to do something else other than what we know is to be right. Otherwise, what we've been told or what we've been told by the Lord and the Word of God. So we are breathing this air that we are chronic victims. And when we do that, we are shifting the control of all of our behavior, not from ourselves, but to others. Of course, there are real victims of a evil world we live in. We see those absolutely. And we do not want to make light of that. And we are making light of that by calling everyone a victim, by the way. But this is something we intrinsically feel when we face the consequences of our actions. That it must be someone else's fault. It can't be my fault. The problem is, is what the Bible teaches us. And that is, the Bible teaches us that, that no one has wronged you, no one has hurt you, and no one has lied to you more than yourself. And that's sin. This is what sin does to us. Sin lies to us, it wrongs us, it hurts us, and it's ourselves all the while. So instead of being a biblically guided fear of the Lord, like we have seen in our passage this morning, the, the storm can be others. It can be people. The fear of man goes by other labels too. We call it peer pressure. We call it people-pleasing. And codependency is the new code word that we like to use that's being used in academic circles. Kind of soften the blow and give more responsibility off the actual person who is wrong. The fear of man is such a part of our human fabric because we are afraid that we can be exposed and humiliated by others. That's why we are so scared of man. This is the greatest enemy of intimacy, isn't it? And we're just so afraid that we're going to be humiliated by someone else if we let them see. We fear people because they can reject and ridicule and despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or even threaten us. Every one of those has something in common with the storm. They see people, or the storm in the case of disciples, bigger than God. The disciples saw the storm bigger than Jesus in, in the boat. And out of that, we believe that that fear in us is going to crush us. And it creates in us uh, this, 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 um, this angst and this anxiety that gives control over to other people. Gives them power and a right to tell us how to feel, think, and do. Therefore, making them bigger than God. When people become big and God becomes small. I want you to see that for most of us this morning, the real storm in our heart is not a hurricane or a tornado or a flood. It may not even be the fear of death or an uncertain future, but the real storm in our heart this morning is the fear of man. And here's what I don't want you to hear this morning and what I'm saying about fear. I am not saying that fear is not real and that... Because there are real, scary, tragic, 
horrific things that can happen in our lives, that have happened in our lives, and they are very real. But we are not to be given over to those fears as if we have no hope, as if Christ is not sovereign, as if not God has ordained our good. No matter the storm and the fear that we face in life, fear gives us a perception that God is sleeping and that apparently he is oblivious to our need and our misery. Does he even know? Does he even care? And so we often conclude that we're alone and that no one, including God himself, knows what's happening and how I am feeling. So I want you to understand this. The storm was absolutely necessary for the disciples' spiritual maturity. Because it is here, here at this point where they can see and they're set up to see what is greater, what is bigger than even death itself. And this is God's mercy. This is God's mercy for us to be able to see And this includes us as well, not just the disciples. My second point that I want to make this morning is fearing the holy. In verse 25, this is where we saw the disciples, where they feared and they marveled at the reaction uh, of of what Jesus had done. I mean, they were just in terror of Jesus. Not what we should expect. For them, it was out of the pan and into the fire. I didn't think the pan could get any worse. They thought that the wind, the waves, the water was dangerous, but they were overcome. Uh, What overcame them even more was that who was sovereign, holy, and omnipotent, who was more powerful than even nature and death itself was in the boat with them. You know, John Calvin rightly put it like this, saying, Hence that dread and amazement with which as... Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You know, the Bible is just full of examples of time and time again. When man, even the best among us, when confronted with the presence of the holy, they were completely and utterly undone and humbled to the uttermost. To almost death. Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah 6. I mean, you go there, look at a perfect example. And more recently, when we saw... uh, Peter's brief reaction in Luke when Jesus filled their nets with fish. Peter was undone in the presence of God. Who is this one who can calm the wind and the waves? Who has raised the dead? He is the Son of God and He alone is intrinsically worthy of all of our worship and devotion. The disciples, in their fear of the Holy Creator, before them asked the right question then, because He is Emmanuel, 
God with us. He is God incarnate who has all the authority over your life. But to you, who is this? How do you respond to Jesus? Where is your faith? So in building up their faith, Jesus terrifies them with the holy. That's how he builds up their faith. He terrifies them with a greater, more fearful holiness and power. Replacing their fears of the unholy with the infinite holy. So the first thing that we need to to um, that we need to in escaping our fears is to know that God is awesome and glorious and not whatever we may be fearing. That He is greater. That He is bigger. And this is a discipline and a knowledge. That as the church, we need to recover. We need to recover more trembling toward God, toward Christ, because we need to see him as he is, as he's been revealed in the scriptures like the disciples did that very day. Because Hebrews 10.31 says this, For it is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what they experienced. We must grow in the fear of the Lord because the person who fears the Lord will not be controlled by their fear. The fear of the Lord is not just terror of the of the holy as sinners. It's the that's the that's the that's where it starts. But as sinners redeemed, brought into the fear of the Lord, it moves from terror then to worship for those who are trusted in Christ. The fear of the Lord is, is a reverent submission that leads to obedience and worship, trust, hope, and faith. And this fear of the Lord acknowledges our sinfulness and God's holiness, having a clear eye to God's justice and His anger against sin. But also, this fear knows God's great forgiveness, His mercy, His grace, and His love. It knows that because God's eternal plan, Jesus humbled himself by dying on the cross to redeem his enemies from slavery and death. It knows that in our relationship with God, he always says, I love you first. And that knowledge, that truth, that promise of the fear of the Lord then draws us closer to God rather than running and hiding. It leads us to submit gladly to his lordship, his holiness. And what sounds radical and crazy is it leads us to delight in obedience. Like we see in David. Like we see in Jesus himself. This kind of fear is our, the pinnacle of our response to God. The fear of the Lord then simplifies life for us, doesn't it? It just simplifies everything. It makes everything simple. Every decision then that we make, everything that we do, every time we are tempted to fear, man, it simplifies everything for us. Because if we understand His holiness and His beauty and His justice and His wrath, then it just puts everything in its place as lesser, smaller, un, unable to compare to the greatness of His holiness of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. That no matter what comes, no matter what storm or fear or temptation or fear of man, the fear of the Lord clearly guides us in every matter. And that is when our lives will align with our desires to hallow his name in this world. Once again, I don't want to trivialize scary, difficult, fearful situation. 
situations in life. Jesus doesn't. So neither do I. But the thing that we want to be deep into our hearts, to just burrow deep down into our souls, is a steadfast resolve to trust in the Lord, to hope in Him, to look at our Savior, and to be faithful. And that brings us to our third point. In verse 25, in verse 25, Jesus asks the question, where is your faith? In the way that we fight fear, we fight fear with faith. So after Jesus sounds storms, he asks the question, where is your faith? What is the placeholder of your beliefs? What moves your emotions and responses to all the things, including fear? What do you fear more? Do you fear the storm or the man who is sleeping at the front of the boat? Where is your faith? Before we get to that question, we must ask then, what is faith? Is it a spiritual, optimistic outlook on life that no matter what comes my way, just have faith? Is, a, is it a Jesus kind of hoping for the best? This is, how, is this how you think of faith? You know, the Bible tells us that faith is the assurance. Think about that. Assurance, not insurance. Assurance of the things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. So faith is not telling you to believe something that not, is not reality. Faith is, is not a mindless stab in the dark a, a, a dark, a crossing of your fingers and hoping for the best. It is not leaping into nothingness like we've learned from Indiana Jones. No, here the word faith speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought upon God in his promises, his scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God through His Word, even just the few we have unpacked in Luke so far, then how you live your life right now, not just when you're faced with fear, will be radically different than, than, than if you didn't possess that certainty or that assurance or that conviction of all. That's faith. Art Azurdia said that faith is a positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not just merely believing God, it is believing God. It is taking God at His word. Living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what He says. That, this is powerful here, that is doing all right, that is his speaking, is his doing. That his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that will move you to persevere in obedience to him, no matter what storm of fear comes. So how do we face fear? How do we face the storms that come? How do we become a stronger Christian, an outspoken and more courageous Christian? The answer to that is that 
you increase your faith. Increase your faith. You see, your faith will instinctively grow and strengthen in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. If you expand your understanding of the object of your faith, the holiness of Jesus Christ, and all of his promises, then your faith itself will obediently follow. This week I started something that I haven't done in 15 years. I started working out. And I have a goal. And actually it's been a goal for most of my life. And that is I just want to be stronger. I know I'm skinny. Listen, I get it. How the Lord made me. And I'll probably always be that way. I'm okay with it. I'm tall, I'm lanky, whatever. I got a beautiful wife. I'm cool. But I've also learned that I will never get stronger if I do not exercise and work out my muscles. So is your faith weak? It's because you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes bigger and greater, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to your reality, then your faith will become increasingly stronger. So how does this happen? It's just like how I need to work out. How I want to get stronger. I want more faith. I want to get stronger. What do I what do? I, do? I go to the gym. I work out. We grow in our faith by immersing ourselves in the faith-building Word of God. Read and know Jesus Christ. The same powerful word that long ago brought the universe into existence, the same powerful word that hushed the wind and the waves, instantly is the same word that can bring you to life, that flourish in confidence and peace. And it is a word that will build you up in faith that is real and authentically Christian. Brothers and sisters, this is why God has appointed storms to increase our faith. To look at the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and trust Him and hold fast to Him. As we sang this morning, the anchor, the anchor that is always steady. So what about you? Where is your faith? The question Jesus asks, the question we should ask. The disciples ask, who then is Jesus? To you, I ask, who then is Jesus? If you were like me, you struggle with fearing storms instead of fearing the Lord. So may I encourage you with the gospel as it encourages me. Remember here that even in, that even here, even in the, the disciples' apparent lack of faith, see what Jesus does. He helps them. He saves them. He rescues them. But he also teaches them. In his mercy, brother and sister, he is correcting us. As he has corrected them. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't abandoned me in our fear or has left us. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. He is with us. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. John 4, 18 says, There is no peace in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love that has been expressed to us and shown to us in Jesus Christ. Who him, who he himself loved us in a way that would redeem us. A love that, that, that drew him to the cross. A love that would bring redemption to us and reconciliation. If we are to have no fear before the Holy God because of our standing now, our right standing with Him now because of the blood of Christ, then why should we fear anything else? Because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank you, O oh God, for the promises that you have shown us even this morning. Thank you for showing us a, a glorious picture of our Holy Savior, who you have sent. You have sent who willingly died on a cross for our sins so that we can be reconciled before you. Help us, O oh God, to be immersed in the perfect love Increase our faith as we increase our joy and delight in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And be with us as we respond for the glory of your name and for the joy of our hearts. Amen.